Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of Commonplace, featuring writer, critic, and professor Maggie Nelson. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Many of you listening will have read at least one of Maggie Nelson's incredible books. Some of you, no doubt, are dedicated fans of Maggie's book, Jane, or her book, The Art of Cruelty, A Reckoning, or The Argonauts, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2015 and was a New York Times bestseller. Or her cult classic, Bluets, published by Wave in 2009 and reissued by Wave in a special 10th anniversary edition last year. Maggie Nelson has won almost all the big prizes an NEA Fellowship, Guggenheim, Creative Capital Award, and the MacArthur. And her books sell. She is widely read and deeply appreciated by poets and scholars and by people who hardly ever read poetry or criticism. There are, of course, many excellent reviews of Maggie's work, fabulous interviews with Maggie, wherein she talks about queer theory, feminist theory, the American obsession with violence and missing or murdered white women, art, identity, grief, the New York School poets, pain, pleasure, the color blue. You can find links to a few of our favorite reviews and interviews to Maggie's books on our website, commonpodcast.com. And in our show notes, for those of you unfamiliar with Maggie's oeuvre, you have many delights ahead of you, including this conversation, which I recorded with Maggie at her office at University of Southern California on October 15th, 2019. And for those of you familiar with Maggie's work, I think you will also enjoy this conversation. We don't go over old territory. I have wanted to have Maggie on Commonplace since I started the podcast back in 2016. When I finally got the opportunity, I realized that what I wanted to talk to her about is what it's like to be a poet and critic who started off publishing with small presses and whose glorious, strange books have found and in some ways created a dedicated and enthusiastic general readership. And I wanted to talk with her when she wasn't on book tour promoting a new book, when she was between books or in the midst of writing a new book. And I got that opportunity. Maggie and I spoke the day after I recorded a conversation with Christine LaRusso, episode 79, which aired back in December. I was in Los Angeles for a West Coast Sound Machine Commonplace mini-tour planned to coincide with a family wedding in Palm Springs. A few hours after speaking with Maggie, I read with Christine LaRusso and Tommy Pico, episode 53, at Story's Bookstore. Two days later, I had a lovely dinner with Sarah Vapp, episode 30, and Victoria Chang, episode 75, and read with Sarah Vapp at Beyond Baroque. The day after that, I had lunch and a tearful but inspiring walk on the beach with Sarah Manguso, episode 30. The trip was a whirlwind, and recording with Maggie, even if it hadn't been so packed between so many major events, would have been a nervous thrill for me, because I've been reading Maggie Nelson's work and thinking about her with admiration, awe, affection, and jealousy for years. For this episode, we have a bounty of patron extras. 
All patrons will receive access to the audio of my reading with Sarah Vapp at Beyond Baroque, which, if I do say so myself, is one of the best readings I've ever attended. Some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive one of the following books, all by Maggie Nelson. Women, the New York School, and Other True Abstractions, courtesy of University of Iowa Press. Jane, and Something Bright Than Holes, both courtesy of Soft Skull. Bluets, courtesy of Wave Books. The Argonauts and The Red Parts, both courtesy of Grey Wolf. The Latest Winter and Shiner, both courtesy of Zed Books. And The Art of Cruelty, courtesy of W.W. Norton. For this episode, Commonplace's partner charitable organization will donate $150 to Critical Resistance, an organization chosen by Maggie Nelson. Critical Resistance seeks to build an international movement to end the prison industrial complex by challenging the belief that caging and controlling people makes us safe. To find out how to become a patron of Commonplace or a member of the Commonplace Book Club or to sign up for our newsletter, visit commonpodcast.com. More than almost any other writer I know, Maggie Nelson thinks and speaks and writes with complexity and lucidity about the untransmittability of certain life experiences in a way that is immediately interesting and that sneaks up on you in its profundity and usefulness. Re-listening to this episode and preparing it for you was both a blessing and an emotional challenge. At the end of last summer, while recovering from my hysterectomy, I experienced a strong resurgence of anxiety, which then gave way to depression. My youngest son broke his arm while away from home. My middle son went to college for the first time. By the time I recorded this conversation with Maggie in October, I was not in good shape. When I returned home to New York, I saw a reproductive psychiatrist who turned out to be extraordinarily horrible, and then a very good psychiatrist. I started an SSRI, which has been enormously helpful. This was not my first experience with depression, nor would it be my last. Since January, my oldest son has been on leave from college and living at home while in the midst of a major depressive episode. For me, experiencing my son's depression has been exhausting, terrifying, confusing, full of moments that are psychically and physically obliterating, and full of moments of grace, deep connection, understanding, transformation, and revelation. In the past few months, I've had to cancel plans, miss deadlines, and give myself over to the experience of being in the midst of something I cannot control. It has been humbling and awful and fascinating. Listening to Maggie talk about Hannah Arendt's table, about death, about non-therapy ways of demonstrating compassion, about countering the natural anxiety of aging and trying to become more sane and less reactive, this conversation has helped me deeply. And I hope it might help you 
especially if you are caught in the midst, if you are in between, struggling perhaps to care for someone you love or for yourself or to engage in a liberatory process while trapped bodily, historically, emotionally, financially, or philosophically. I wish each of you strength, health, care, and kindness. Here's Maggie Nelson. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm really excited to be here, but I'm also uh, pretty nervous. Why? (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to get right to it. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, A few different things. I think I've been wanting to talk to you for Commonplace, like from the first time that I started it. Um, So there's a lot of anticipation Uh for me. Um, Also, you are a writer who I've read every single one of your books. Oh, my God. And some of them multiple times. I just taught Jane oh, wow. um, for like the fifth time. Oh, amazing. Maybe? Thank you for doing that. Um, really well, thank it. you for writing it. Um, and and also your critical work and sort of the scope of your career and the, the way that you've kind of been in the literary world has been both like incredibly formative to mm. me. Um, also sometimes... Uh, uh, enviable mm. or and en- I feel envious sometimes <laughs> and that's such an uncomfortable emotion <laughs> that I was like oh this is a really interesting one like it's it's one thing it's it's a different kind of intense nervousness to um like I've I've recorded these conversations with Bernadette Mayer mm. with Alice Notley yeah, yeah. and you know uh, those the have, true legends, right? Yeah, yeah. Those have like a real yeah. a different. And then there's also I just recorded a conversation with a former student of mine whose first book just came out. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind yeah. of nervousness. And yeah, then yeah. of course with peers, it's its own thing and has some of them right. I know really well personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, others of them I know really through my work. But mm-hmm. but I feel that like with uh, with your work. Um, and my projections onto <laughs> you as a person, there's a lot of stuff for me. So, okay. th- so that's one thing. Great. Well, I'm going to set up all my projection <laughs> monitors around right. me and see what I can right. tell is coming at me. The other thing is that I'm just like in this weird part of my life, which we can talk about or not, yeah. um, because I want to talk about you, but um, to just to be like transparent and yeah. honest, like I think I'm just extremely nervous right now and I'm I'm interested in kind of figuring that out um this is not my where I thought my first question was going to be um but I was listening to an interview uh now I can't even remember um who you were speaking with but you were talking about um being interested in drugs Mm. and books about drugs Mm -hmm. and so I I, that's been on my mind Mm. um quite a lot Mm -hmm. um in particular because I, someone recommended to me that I go see a reproductive psychiatrist, which I didn't even know existed. Yeah. Yeah. So I spoke to her on the phone. So she's a person who uh, specializes in postpartum depression, Mm. postpartum psychosis, Mm. um, perimenopausal issues, Mm. menopausal issues. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to, unfortunately for me, have a hysterectomy this past May. Mm -hmm. And 
there's some there's so little information about um like what that does mm-hmm. to your body and yeah. so little research and so yeah. little experience and so yeah. little um kind of access to mm-hmm. women's experience mm-hmm. yeah, around yeah, that yeah, yeah um so did you have like a super crash like a super hormonal crash well so that's that's a super right. interesting thing right so i still have my ovaries but okay. i don't have my uterus okay so if the most doctors will just tell you well they're you'll be you're you're fine, fine. You're, yeah. there's no difference like as right, long as yeah, you have your yeah. ovaries i can't believe this is what we're talking yeah, about no, right it's, now. i'm sorry I'm, no i'm into it <laughs> i love it yeah, yeah. okay so but there's a lot of um anecdotal evidence Mm -hmm. um, from um, people who've had hysterectomies Mm -hmm. who have said, no, they've experienced like a lot of mood changes, Mm -hmm. in particular Mm -hmm. anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. post hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. Definitely if you've had your ovaries removed, Mm -hmm. but but also not. Uh And my understanding is that doctors either Mm -hmm. don't believe that Mm -hmm. or they associate um, that kind of evidence i'm i think of it as evidence mm-hmm. with um women feeling like that their femininity has been taken from them like a psychological response to some kind of sentimental attachment to the uterus mm-hmm. but there's you know it it i think there's a much more likely um possibility that doctors don't actually know what the uterus does mm-hmm. yeah um and that, probably true. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. anyway, I spoke to this yeah, reproductive yeah. psychiatrist um, about the possibility of coming in and mm-hmm. getting assessed for mm-hmm. medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. she would be somebody who, unlike a regular psychiatrist, mm-hmm. who would just like say, here's some antidepressants, feel mm-hmm. better, mm-hmm. would be able to have more um, subtlety of diagnosis around hormonal Ish, how, how hormonal issues might be affecting mood. So I was very excited that someone existed. Mm-hmm. But when I spoke to her, mm-hmm. she asked a bunch of questions. There were a bunch of red flags for me other than just the price, mm-hmm. including that she said, um, she asked if I was married. I said mm-hmm. I was married. And she said, well, you know, maybe your, um, maybe your husband can come in for the first part of the intake because it's very important to me to speak with someone who knows the 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 patient the best Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i was like lady how do you know that someone's partner or spouse knows you the best that is such a massive assumption Mm -hmm. and so infantilizing in in certain ways she asked like oh do you have any other you know do you have any addiction issues Mm -hmm. and i was like no, but I am a cannabis user. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, I'm going to stop you right there and save you some money. Um, like, don't come in unless, you know, you haven't used any cannabis at all for at least four weeks. And I was like, right, yeah. that is so interesting. It's strange, really. Yeah. And so I was thinking about this um, mm-hmm. when I was listening to this conversation that you were having um, and and thinking about how in some ways it's a battle between different kinds of drugs, mm-hmm. um, antidepressants being one, um, hormone replacement being another, um, you know, cannabis being a third and different conceptions of the what's okay and not okay mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. put in your body yeah. or um yeah. so i don't know i was wondering are you are you still writing about <laughs> is drugs part of, part, drugs is part of the book that you're writing about freedom right that's true yeah you're like you're gonna like know more about me with your research than i know <laughs> about myself but yeah no um yeah i kind of have just finished a draft of that book and and uh and it has several chapters mm-hmm. that are kind of like very large chapters each one about like 80 pages and one of them is about drugs yeah huh. 
Yeah, do you get yeah. into antidepressants yeah. or No, other I mean, it's really hard to say you're writing about drugs because there's kind of two major divides, which I don't spend a lot of time with, which are totally like, you know, logically and ethically you should. The first divide is between like drugs as a kind of metonym for addiction because drugs mm -hmm. are not a metonym for addiction. But in this chapter, um, I mostly am writing about um, addictive drugs without naming them quite as such, you know, but, but I mean, I'm kind of using Abitel Ronell's Crack Wars where she, um, and also Paul Preciado's book, Testo Junkie, where even in the word Testo Junkie, like people aren't typically addicted to testosterone or to other hormones. Um, but his kind of insistence on putting them together is a kind of provocation about the state of addiction. So the chapter kind of more uses that kind of um, templating, but then that's the first one. And the second divide is between, as you say, like different kinds of different classes of drugs mm -hmm. and the fact that there's a book by Marcus Boone called um, The Road to Excess, which is all about writers and drugs, which I read at the beginning of my process and thought it was very wise that he has like a chapter on cannabis, a chapter on anesthetics, a chapter on psychedelics, a chapter on narcotics. And, and his kind of thesis is, and I think he's utterly correct, um, instead of talking about like a drug canon of literature, it, it really is more apt to talk about like the narcotic canon of literature or like the methamphetamine canon of literature because the psychedelic canon, they, they produce really different hmm kinds of literature for for various reasons and so and I my chapter also doesn't um pause uh like within that but and so I think that if you were like being a more meticulous scholar you would definitely make a lot of gradations around those things mm -hmm. I think that the the Preciado take in Testo Junkie which maybe has to do with what you're talking about which is it like instead of saying like this is the era of opioids or this is the era of, you know, this is like the cocaine, you know, era or whatever, this crack, you know, wars, whatever. Um, Preciado's theory about pharmacopornographia is that everything from Viagra to estrogen to, you know, that all substance, um, even including things like internet porn, which aren't substances per se, but, you know, that his, his, his theory about what what pharmacy and porn <laughs> as a kind of regime have melded together would be, you know, everything from like, you know, blood transplant, you know, just like the whole apparatus mm. of biomaterial. So I think in that sense, um, uh, I'm not saying that's like, you know, the best uh, thesis or lens of looking at things, but I would say the drug chapter is more kind of, um, it's more like, philosophical about those kinds of questions than it is like really burrowing into um the difference between like hormone replacement therapy and like edibles you know what i mean right and that right because because i guess the connection has to do with addiction or these uh drug books that are kind of in the drug genre if yeah. that's a, even a genre right. yeah yeah um uh uh have are sort of um oriented to be about uh, freedom, but but addiction mm. is also in some ways, you know, the anti-freedom. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. What are some yeah. of the other chapters? Uh, the chapters right now are an introduction, which basically explains why the book is not about political freedom. Mm. There are a lot of books about political freedom right now. Uh -huh. And the first chapter kind of just kind of offers an explanation of why that's not the focus and what you what one might gain were that not one's only focus. Mm -hmm. And then the chapters then from there are about uh, the notion of freedom in the art world. Mm. 
uh, freedom in talks in discussions about the climate and decarbonization, freedom in li drug literature, and freedom in conversations about sexual freedom. Hmm. At wow. present time. I know, right? Each one's like a little universe, like a fractal world that like, it was very difficult writing this book to like, uh, like move in between chapters. Like I would have to just stay with one for like six months or eight months. And like, and it just was very hard to like, you know, but now when I edit it, I'll have to kind of look through and see what, what the, what, the, what I've said in each chapter that can be extrapolated into some kind of overarching connect. I mean, there is a lot that connects them, but I think that I didn't want to kind of like the cruelty book about art where instead of answering people's big questions like, does watching cruelty make us more cruel? Like it instead kind of insisted on burrowing down into individual mm -hmm. moments of art and context and history. And this is kind of similar where it doesn't, it doesn't argue for some kind of overarching notion of freedom that should be applied in each place similarly in all, in all places and times, or that should be rejected. It's more kind of like, how is this word operating at like, you know, climate conventions and, and you know, just like what's going on with, mm -hmm. and, you know, especially because, uh, you know, after many years, many years, maybe even, you know, two to 400 years or something, it's uh, at, at our present moment, it's not actually the lodestar <laughs> that it has been in times past as a concept. So I was interested in that, too. Yeah. Oh, and this, I, I can't wait. So what stage of the writing? <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm doing an interview for the book that is so far from coming out. But I kind of like, like that. Promotion for a book that's like not even yet finished. But um, I think it's going to come out. And this is all like very recently decided. I think I think it will come out in fall 2021 with Grey Wolf. So amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. That's great. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm excited to make it better. I mean, I'm really excited to be done with it at least to take a break from it because I feel like I'm sure we are all so, I mean, I'm not sure that we're all anything, but I know me and many people I talk to are so exhausted by the kind of presentism of our political moment. And I feel like it has made writing about things that are current, um, really taxing both to keep up, but also in a moment when people are so feeling so foreclosed or anxious about futurity, um, even how to imagine a book living outside of our present moment of it being written have been mm -hmm. very vexing. I mean, if you're going to write directly on the climate, that's like obviously a very like, like over like, like if it takes five years to write a book like that, that this book did. And if over those five years, you know, uh, you know, you can quantify how much, you know, carbon dioxide has ascended to the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Like there's a certain, you know, it's like a, painful perversity to the time of writing, which I think myself and a lot of other people have so often posed as a kind of uh, ameliorative antidote to our times. But when, the, when, you know, now we have this new problem, which is like an urgency that can't be, you know, blithely attended with aphorisms about thinking historically or thinking in deep time. I mean, they can, mm -hmm. because it's like part of the illusion is that that this is the first, you know, catastrophic thing humanity's ever faced or so that's, but it doesn't like, it's not like a recognizing that worlds have ended before. doesn't still give you like an eject button from, from the problem. So. Right. Yeah. And how, over the past five years, um, 
how have you kind of managed to sustain yourself in this vexing process of, you know, writing about these things that maybe, you know, why are you writing about them? Have you uh, been writing something else at the same time? Have you been trying to make sure to do something other than writing that is restorative? (laughs) That would have been wise, right? (laughs) I don't know. Or have you just gone deep into the... These past five years have been really weird, you know? I I mean, every bunch of years is weird, but like, um, I mean, I think that, you know, you know, writing is very difficult in that I think it's like a when you're really into a very long and big project that requires a lot of attention and you have other things as everybody does that require attention in your life, you know, you can want to have all the balance in the world and you can strive for that, but there's something, you know, about the project that demands a kind of unbalance mm-hmm. and, and that demands a kind of, you know, just act like g- giving more than you've got to give in a certain sense. Although, you know, as you age, that becomes a harder and harder thing to do without noticing the, um, you know, the strains and the things that give. I mean, when you're younger, things give, but they don't maybe give in the same way. So I think that, you know, I think, you know, probably in the last year or two, I probably introduced more things that are, you know, helpful measures than maybe before. But, you know, I think like the Argonauts was just kind of an odd um I've never really had a publishing experience that kept me so busy for so long mm. and that felt like like I was very grateful for it. But at a certain point, you're like, okay, this book needs to, like, die. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, need to die. I need to kill it to, like, keep moving. I mean, not with my writing life because I've been writing when I've been writing, but just in terms of, like, talking about it and going around and then mm-hmm. – and, again, like, I'm not – I'm, like, very grateful for it's going on and on, but we were just talking before we started recording about, like, France or something and, like, dealing with, like, French politics or something about around the book and it's like – but, you know, that's, like – like I was doing all that like three or three years after it had come out and you're kind of like, you know, and, and, you know, you know, from writing books, like, you know, usually you're pretty, you're pretty done a lot earlier than that. You know, you're pretty, you're pretty done. Like, like it's hard to get through like the initial rush. So, but again, right. it's all been good. It's all been great. Like I'm very grateful. And a lot of things in my life have really changed from it having such a broader readership, but it's just been um, like, but you know, I think I just have, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I just, in terms of like getting me through the project, I mean, in addition to all the things that one does, you know, exercise, whatever, like, I feel like I just, um, I just, you know, I've had to bear down further into like not asking a lot of questions about my curiosity and just letting it be like, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in this, so I'm going to stick on it, you know, and kind of without needing to know the outcome of like, like, I don't know, in 2021, when the book's published, like, you know, will Trump be like, you know, herding us into camps and, you know, it'll be like tyranny forever? Or will this episode, we'll be all talking about it. Like, already in my book, I talk about, like, in the drug chapter about, like, Jeff Sessions and his stuff. He was doing drugs. And now I'm like, no one even's going to remember that he was the attorney general. You know, it's just like, it's been very, like, you know, opioid commission. Like, we haven't talked about the opioid commission for friggin' years. Like, you know, like, the, the idea that Trump was ever even going to, that anything was ever going to happen about any of that is just so far gone Mm -hmm. so god only knows what two years from now will be happening so yeah but that's i mean it's true of all of 
time in history. It's just I, I, I've never really. I mean, the Argonauts is kind of tethered to time in history, but not not quite the same way. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you said that about the Argonauts. Like I, I was thinking at first, like, oh, I wish I'd, I'd talked to you a few years ago. But yeah, yeah. I actually was thinking that it's really nice to talk to you now uh-huh. when the Argonauts is a few years, you know, w- yeah. when you're a few years past the big, big um, kind of rush. Because I'm interested in. Um, you know, there's there's one quality of talking to someone who has a new book out, um, and sometimes it sounds a little book tory, right, you yeah, know, yeah. and a little bit canned, yeah, yeah. Um, or someone is a little bit like more like how I feel. My recent book came out, and I I feel like a deer in the headlights. Like I'm just I I, I can't I I just feel like it's sort of in shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But both of those are very mm-hmm. different experiences than um, looking back yeah. on you yeah, know yeah. this experience and being sort of after. And I think for you in particular mm-hmm. that both Bluets and the Argonauts th- these were not your first books. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. they they you know launched you into a very different kind of uh, status, a different mm-hmm. kind of relationship with the public, if there is such a thing, um, or a wider readership. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of wondering like how mm-hmm. you feel. Like who is Maggie Nelson now? <laughs> <laughs> like you know, you know, right. it's like yeah. you know. Do you right. feel like? Uh, is that is there a pressure when you're writing this book or living your life to mm-hmm. be, you know, the Maggie Nelson of the MacArthur, you know, to be the, you know, like it, it, that that are you? Do you feel, um, you know, like, I mean, I love all of your books. Mm-hmm. Um, your book of criticism on the New York School mm-hmm. was, I mean one of the most incredibly Aww. important books that probably like for one me. of 12 people who's read it. So I'm very well, grateful so, to hear that. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I yeah, mean. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. when, you know, everybody wants to talk about the Argonauts right. I, and yeah, I, yeah. you know, we could yeah, have yeah, our, yeah, a whole yeah, two yeah, hour yeah. conversation about the yeah, Argonauts, yeah. but yeah, for yeah. me, there's, yeah. there, there are moments. It's almost like, you know, wait, don't forget about my other child. Right. Sure. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. where I'm like, yeah. wait, but have you read her book in the New York school? Have, you know, have you, have you read, have you read Jane? Have you read her two her other two books of poetry? Um, and, and so, uh, but there's there's I guess there's a little bit of a feeling that I have with those cult mm-hmm, those books that mm-hmm, they're like you have mm-hmm. a little bit of a cult mm-hmm. following around those mm-hmm. and I feel like mm-hmm. the people who um, loved your work before mm-hmm, Argonauts mm-hmm. like really blew up mm-hmm. feel like they have certain kind of claim <laughs> to you and then there's like everyone else who right. loves the Argonauts um, and so I don't know I'm kind yeah. of wondering like how how. how what does it feel like to be you <laughs> after being like part right. of this super marginalized right. literary yeah, yeah. life and yeah. then not? Yeah. Well, you know how life is like you're you're just yourself mm-hmm. moving along through your day. So I think kind of like I was joking at the beginning when you were talking about projections, it's like you note more often people projecting things onto you or mm. prefacing sentences like, well, this probably would marry to you because you're blah, blah, you know, and you're just kind of like, these are all, so, I mean, I feel like, you know, that other people are feeling different ways, but mm. you yourself don't feel any different way. And I think, so I think that, and I think like you're saying, I mean, I'll just say this because I don't know who listens to <laughs> these, but like maybe people, especially from the poetry world can like understand, which is that like, um, in poetry land, like, esoterica is not uh is not a negative feature and also you know you can kind of come up with this sense of like you know 
more readership or more mainstream things being a sign that like something's gone awry, not yep. something good. And I, all of my heroes um, in writing, I mean, Eileen Miles kind of raised me in the wild in, in New York as a writer and like, um, I mean, Eileen's somebody else. So now everyone, like, you know, like that moment of fame that Eileen was having was so surreal in the sense of like, for many of us, they were, they were the most famous person in town for decades. So you're just like, it, it, it's like, it, it's like, it's like people are like looking at a totally different person. Um, so I think in that sense, all of which is to say that um, I think I feel kind of, you know, wry, <laughs> grateful and wry only in that I don't, um, I think people have a presumption that all writers are like going for this thing mm -hmm. and now that like I don't know how I would feel like if it hadn't happened but I certainly wasn't unhappy with my writing life beforehand I felt like the mark of your good writing life was that you could have the time and space to write the things that you cared most about and would find someone to publish them and kind of like the outcome was up for other people to decide but you just moved on to the next thing you wanted to write about and I felt as though that was what I'd been doing so and also like you say I people like to put on writing careers like um the mainstream fetish likes to talk about things like leading to a particular moment as if like mm -hmm. a book like the argonauts is some kind of culmination of different stylistic experiments that has now come to some you know successful head you know whereas like i fully stand by like i'm i don't that, that, that modality in that book, like moving between like anecdote and theory or whatever, is like one of many modalities. It's, it's one deployment of the personal. It's one deployment of the theoretical. Mm -hmm. It's one deployment of criticism. I've tried other things. I like my experiments and other things. Like it, I, don't, I don't think like the New York School book or a book like The Art of Cruelty because they're just fully critical endeavors. Like the Freedom book is a critical endeavor. Like I don't, I don't think something needs a like bleeding heart confessional eye to give writing heat or value so I don't I don't think there's any problem with the books of mine that don't do that at the same time I've never had a problem with you know deep first person uh you know violations of your privacy and I you know wrote my undergraduate thesis on confessionalism and Sexton and Plath and and I'm super into that too so I so I kind of I guess all of which is to say that like I'm I'm very, very grateful for, and I'm, I'm not just saying that in a kind of like rote way, like a lot of parts of my life that were, you know, difficult have been made easier mm -hmm. <laughs> for which I'm, for which, you know, only up to, you know, three years ago, really, um, neither I nor my partner and raising our kids and stuff really saw a way out of like in terms of living in an expensive city. And mm -hmm. like, it just, there were a lot of things that felt really like, wow, we're really, you know, heading into this with, you know, the proverbial, like not really making ends meet, you mm -hmm. know, like, and, and not really knowing what, and so I mean, I'm really, I, you know, I'm, I'm really truly grateful that out of the blue, um, some things about our situation were just given some more ease, um, both for him and for me, just in terms of like him being able to like rent a bigger studio to make art that he actually, you know, just like some things that are really, that don't always come around in a life, but I didn't expect them. And I don't, they don't, Okay, this is like a long monologue, but in case it helps any young writers, may I would also just say that like none of my books that I've written um, were widely desired, if really desired at all. Mm. And so it 
it's gratifying that people are interested in them now, but it, it only just reinforces what we as poets always know, which is that like, it's not like some book comes out and just by virtue of its, I mean, the red parts was dead and out of print mm-hmm. a year after it was published. And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that book. I mean, it should have stayed in print, but you know, it, it wouldn't have been republished by Grey Wolf if the Argonauts hadn't done so well for them. And that was lovely that they reprinted it, but it doesn't mean anything about whether the red parts was a good or bad book. It just was like, that was its fate for the moment was it was lying fallow, <laughs> you know, mm. abandoned by a trade press. And, and, you know, it got, you know, it got lucky, but it's, but, those are just like luck things they they really aren't like um you know yeah so it's you know so I, yeah wry and grateful and grateful you know I have to think about I have to think about that later yeah. maybe yeah yeah <laughs> about the luck part and about what you're saying I mean the red parts also is a hugely important book mm. to me um and one that I've written about from a lot of different angles mm. in particular this moment in the red parts where um, you, uh, talk to your mother. Um, I mean, this, this, it it comes up in a lot Mm -hmm. of different ways, but basically, uh, where your mother thanks you for Mm -hmm. writing Jane. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was, that was such a, um, kind of beautiful and painful thing Mm -hmm. for me to read Mm -hmm. because of my own experience writing about my mother, Mm -hmm. um, who really did not want me to. And so it was like the, Mm -hmm. it was the moment that I so desired I'm going off on a tangent, yeah, yeah, but no, just out of love for the yeah, red yeah, parts. Yeah. But, you know, of course, like it is luck um, to some extent, but at the same time, um, I think that we, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself, like mm-hmm. as a writer, like cling to the idea that we, mm-hmm. that we could have some control mm-hmm. over this because I think it's a very confusing, mm-hmm. maybe particularly right now, mm-hmm. um, how much work the author is supposed to do mm-hmm. to promote the book mm-hmm. or to strategize mm-hmm. or to, mm-hmm. you know, whether we have any control or not, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, because you don't really have control over luck, yeah. but yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Yeah. but Right. Yeah. I mean, not luck. Like, I mean, I don't think, well, I'm enough of like an elitist and like a narcissist to feel like, you know, like if the books were really bad, mm-hmm. they wouldn't like, it wouldn't be just like, oh, luck that it found this, you know, bad book and that people were interested. You know, like I think right. that obviously you have to try and write the best books you can. And, but I think that, um, by luck, I guess I'm more thinking of like the the whims of like what mainstream culture decides to bestow its attention on. Right. Um, I think that, you know, I spent, I mean, I made a decision slash non-decision early on when like, you know, the internet was invented that like I wasn't interested mm-hmm. <laughs> in the internet. So I never did that, like had a website or joined any social media stuff. But like, I mean, I certainly spent, I mean, and I'm sure you can relate for like, poetry books man I certainly spent years collaging invitations to you know book (laughs) parties at Kinko's and you mean I took Jane on the road and I went I mean uh, a Kashuk author named Lauren Sanders and I took you know she had this great theory that like you know no queer books ever went to the south so we went to like you know, with our books in the trunk of the car to Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana and I mean like I mean I certainly have like hawked my wares and my you know, extolled my vision, like, you know, with a, with a lot of, um, chutzpah for many, many years. So it wasn't like, 
oh, let the book go out and then just like, and I, you know, I think like, I mean, as per the New York school book, like, especially when I lived in New York, you know, community was like important, was really important to me. And for every book that I did, you know, I, I imagined like, like the New York school had a book party that was like, you know, one of the best nights of my life, mm. hands down in terms of like the people that performed at it and stuff uh, in the event um, in Tribeca, like organized around women in abstraction in, in mid-century with Kim Gordon and Carly Schneeman and Yvonne Rayner and uh, Bernadette. And um, I mean, I was attracted to the New York School initially because I always really wanted literature to like bring together people across arts or, you know, or just to like, you know, like, like Franco Harris said, you know, imagine me at the center of all this beauty, like just like really like f make situations that felt beautiful and then marvel at your luck about being at, you know, at, at the center of them. So I think, um, and then with Jane, you know, that was different. It wasn't euphoric, but, you know, I organized a lot of events. I did an event with Eileen and Claudia Rankin about violence uh, and poetics and like, you know, really always trying to, you know, no one invited me to those, like those were like my brain children right. <laughs> events. And I've brainchilded a lot of events trying to imagine things. So yeah, so not like luck, like let it out and die. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I think that something happened also in my career that was like, it wasn't like luck per se, but like I've been doing a lot of different kinds of books for a long time. They had like some different readers or different people who were like appreciating them, but that for a while when you're doing that, it, it, it seems kind of ad hoc and to you it all has like a lot of continuity but to but but to the naked eye who's not kind of part of your community it might not so I think I just had to write enough of them for somebody to be able to look back and like start to see the, the continuity or something and I think that that also um, helped and for whatever reason the Argonauts provided a kind of opportunity for for that um, kind of retrospecting, you know, mm -hmm. but that's just time and effort and like just being around for long enough to keep, keep going, you know? Yeah. That's really, that's a really helpful like clarification or, yeah. or, or, um, complexifying is not a word, but yeah. I'm going to use that yeah, right great. now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can we go back to yeah. Eileen Miles for a second? Yeah. Um, we have Wayne Kostenbaum in, yeah, in common. Totally. Um, and I think that that, um, it's funny, I, I tend to do this weird psychological thing with um, poets uh, or artists who have kind of a similar foremother, a forefather, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or, or mentor where I get into, maybe this is because I'm an only child, mm -hmm, and so I have to mm -hmm, play this out mm -hmm. um, with non-actual siblings, mm -hmm. but this like kind of sibling relationship where, I, where I'm both like totally fascinated mm -hmm. by what is your relationship mm -hmm. like with Wayne mm -hmm. versus my, you, you know, Wayne? he was my undergrad professor oh, at Yale. Okay. Oh, well, I was thinking about how, um, the, I, 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 I've heard you talk before about the people that have, you know, really deeply mentored you. And this is probably not all of them, but, um, Wayne, Eileen Miles, um, Christina Crosby, mm -hmm. um, and uh, Eve Sedgwick. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how you and I are now the age that mm -hmm. many of them were when we mm -hmm. met them. Mm -hmm. And I imagine also that you are very frequently, but, but correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. in the position of mentor mm -hmm. rather than mentee mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was curious about a few things. Like, first of all, well, some of your mentors have mm -hmm. passed away. Mm -hmm. um, well, Eve has. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but like, what's your relationship 
how's your relationship changed with these people now that you're kind of like an adult um, and they are older adults? Um, and how has your how, how do you feel in the world kind of in a way uh, reaching towards students or younger writers or more emerging writers? Um, do you feel like you have kind of lost the uh, maybe gained friendship, but mm. in a way lost some aspect mm. of mentorship that was important to you mm. or no? No, I don't feel like I've lost anything. I mean, I think I have like, I mean, I think I always have behaved well as a student, but I think that I, um, I think one, one of the things I'm sure that, you know, you as a teacher, you know, you recognize that like, you know, being a student is a state of a lot of projection and a lot of, um, you know, and, and I think I, I don't, I don't have like regrets per se, because I, I think though that, um, you know, making people into, even if it's positively, like, mm -hmm. you know, making people into these people who are like really important to you is still like doing something to them. And I think it has a, I don't think with any of the people you just mentioned, I don't feel this, but I think like in the Argonauts, which kind of, um, is a kind of self-portrait as a student in parts. Um, I think it, it reveals a like sadistic edge of like <laughs> the sadistic edge of the student who like worships Ann Carson, but kind of like wants to take issue with something she said or whatever. Now I've lived long enough that I read those kinds of things about me <laughs> regularly <laughs> and I find them, you know, puzzling because what you're recognizing is like, you know, like I read an essay the other day that was like, you know, Maggie Nelson did a Skype visit to our class and was totally disingenuous. You know, I was just kind of thinking like, you know, you're just getting through the day doing your Skype visit. But like the things that you're saying are like, they're not just you saying them. It's you saying them as this meme of whatever your name or figure means to them. And, and, I, and but I've done the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a natural feature to people I mean, I just went to a very fancy event in Cambridge last weekend with a lot of, you know, kind of luminaries. And it was like, I was also being like, wow, like I'm opening the door for Merrick Garland and like, look at me in the bathroom with Sherilyn Eiffel. Like, I mean, it was very like intense, but I was very also, you know, like you, you, you become very aware that like people are people and right. that like, and, the, and that all these projections are, they're interesting and they can make for funny moments in literature and they can make for great stories and you can tell Benjamin Moser them in a Sontag biography and have them be like snap, you know, but, but they're also just kind of apart from like the field of just regular <laughs> human beings, you mm -hmm. know? So, but again, I don't think I've like, I think I've, you know, my friendships with the people that you've mentioned have aged out of their earlier relations. So, I mean, I, I, our, our friendships are reciprocal, I would hope. At the same time, I think that I've always had a real bone in me that, instead of wanting to kind of rehearse like Oedipal dramas, um, I've always thought that homage was, you know, better than like cutting the knees out under your elders, you know, and I've just, that's just been like a real, it's both been just an orientation I have, like a feeling I, I feel filled with most often is, is gratitude and respect and amazement and like, thank, thank God for you. Um, but it's also one that I think I've, begun to perform more ostentatiously insofar as I um, think it leads away from paranoid and narcissistic approaches to people. And I think that especially like in the Freedom Book and stuff, like I 
think that there's a real um, the fact that like the work of liberation and emancipation is never finished and the fact that it, it will never finish so long mm -hmm. as there are people, but that people can really feel like work that's left to be done emancipatory work, whether it's like about your sex life or whether it's about your voting rights, whatever it is, because people can really quickly feel like somebody should have done this for them, which can then bleed into the people that came before me, failed me. Um, that to me seems, uh, you know, like a real souring <laughs> of, of, of where there could be something else. So I think that's why I've probably come to like, um, but I decided that actually in the New York school book long ago, I decided that I was going to write about people that I liked mm -hmm. because I just feel like it's not even that I can't do the opposite is that the opposite is so easy for me. And I think for most people that I could just, it, it would just be so easy to write like snappy takedowns. I, I just feel like it would be um, a waste of my, a waste of my intellect, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's not that I don't do it every day, all day right. <laughs> internally. I just have kind of made a career decision that that's not, you know, I don't review books or things like that really. So. Yeah. I love that about your work. And I, and I think that, that I share that, um, that, that sense very much. I think I, I can be, um, I work some stuff out in mm -hmm. my poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, around, um, but it's not. It's not cutting someone down. Yeah. It's really exposing my own jealousy or paranoia yeah, yeah, yeah. or yeah. some of those ugly feelings um, that I feel like are important to include. But that's different um, yeah. from what I, I. I'm interested in the phenomenon of. Um, critics who who write those reviews mm -hmm. that are like, you know, it's not just that I don't like Sylvia Plath; it's mm -hmm. the end of literature. Right. Yeah, I'm like yeah, really yeah. interested, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I'm not interested in doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm interested in like what that means, like mm -hmm. how somebody can get a critic so mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. alarmed. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I mm -hmm. one other thing that I was thinking about, um, you know, it's a small sample size and I don't want to essentialize, mm -hmm. but unless I'm wrong, um, none of those mentors of yours had children. Mm. Um, I was wondering about mm -hmm. that too. I was wondering about the work and the energy, mm -hmm. even if it's um, done with uh, generosity and mm -hmm. with energy mm -hmm. of uh, mentorship, mm -hmm. really, I was wondering, mm -hmm. I was trying to think about how for, I, I, and I don't really know for myself, mm -hmm. which is why I'm asking you, mm -hmm. um, but how does, how do you think it, it affects your relationship as a mentor, um, um, being a mother, um, and to what extent maybe did, um, did we get kind of lucky, mm -hmm. um, to have mentors who <laughs> uh -huh. were not also parents? Right, 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 right. Yeah. They're more, more patient because they're not like, I do that at home. <laughs> I need to do that here in the yeah, office. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I've, I've thought about this so much yeah. and about mentorship and mm -hmm. motherhood and mm -hmm. lineage and mm -hmm. influence mm -hmm. and homage. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I really mm -hmm. do feel that to, in, to some extent, um, Wayne was one of the most helpful and loving and non-competitive of my mother's, um, in part, not entirely, but in part, um, because he doesn't have children. Mm. Um, and I, but I don't know, I don't mm -hmm, know if that's, mm -hmm. you know, true, but mm -hmm. I guess, you know, I, I'm also starting to feel, and we were talking about this a little bit, um, before we turn the recorder on 
that it's a tough time for me to be teaching undergraduates when two of my children right. are undergraduates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's too, I feel yeah. that, that, um, cause I really love teaching, mm -hmm. but there's something, um, mm -hmm. complicated about that. Like triggered same, by their age group. I, I really <laughs> am. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. really, really am. And I kind of yeah. feel like I should teach like, you know, preschool mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. my kids are older mm -hmm. and then go back to teaching mm -hmm. college. I can see that. I feel mm -hmm. for myself, even though I can't articulate it mm -hmm. yet, that being a mother has a pretty profound mm -hmm. influence on my relationships um, with, um, and I have especially. How would you describe students. it? I mean, I definitely think that um, my graduate students and and some of my undergraduates or mm -hmm. kind of younger poets. Um, expect a certain kind of care from mm -hmm, me mm -hmm. or or imagine yeah. that that they can have something from me that's maternal right. um, yeah, in, yeah. in a certain way um, that I don't think I really expected mm -hmm. um, yeah. even of my mentors who were mothers right. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know uh, and so that's interesting I do right. not see that they mm -hmm. expect the same kind of emotional labor from my male colleagues mm -hmm. or from my colleagues that don't have children mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then I, I do think that I'm both more uh, likely to get, I mean, this could just be the mm -hmm. kind of person I am mm -hmm. and have nothing to do with having children. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a, a student um, who I care about, mm -hmm. I care about quite quickly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, you know, depends on so many factors. And I'm, and then it's, I, I'm, a, I have become more and more aware that you know, I've always had very good boundaries mm -hmm. about, you know, the big mm -hmm. stuff. But I'm, I'm more aware of having to be to have like very clear boundaries around emotional labor in particular uh, when I when that energy is very depleted from my children. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, we could talk for like a really long time about the matter. I mean, I think partly why I think it's fascinating is because um, I'm just of a lot of minds about it. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I feel like I think that, um, I mean, a lot of this book about freedom is about the idea of care because freedom and care are often pitched as against, like opposite to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, you know, a real, and, you know, and, and Jacqueline Rose's book on mothers you know, makes this really clear, but there's a kind of like, um, you know, when adequate care doesn't seem like it's provided by mothers in particular, you know, there's a kind of sadism that that kicks in um, that is what you're describing about, like, you know, and that it can happen with students or can happen a lot of places. And I think that um, I think most of my relationships, um, like it was very important to me that I forge relationships that were really based on intellectual principles and my writing and things and I did not want I, I to me you know the 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 care was the precisely the freedom from having it be a sphere of care in a understood in a more emotional level I, I do see that that's changed a lot and the reasons why I say I'm kind of all over the map about how I feel about it and there's actually a part in the freedom book that's about this in particular called politics and therapy which is kind of taking up bifo uh, Berardi's like he has this kind of call that like all the politics of the fu future will be therapy and um as I say in that book which I'm sure you can relate to like you know when male professors say that it has a lot more elan <laughs> you know <laughs> and so I think I but I'm also interested in the fact that I think we also all can 
note that like keeping good boundaries in a in a world devoted to eroding them is is a great can be a great act of care at the same time the 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 paltriness of what we call like mental health services and the kind of feeling of like I know I'll get on the phone and dial extension 942 and get you some help like we all know what happens because we've all called 942 or whatever <laughs> I'm not saying that's USC's hotline I know like we've all done that ourselves and we get an intake exam like you described at right. the beginning of the show and next thing you know, you're going like, you know, you're kind of like, you know, people are falling through space going, actually, there is no, just call this number. Like, there is no help for me. And wherein maybe there might have been something that the professor could have done or said that, that actually would have been the thing that would have been the helpful thing, which is different than it being the mental health care thing. And so I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm really have a lot of minds about this at present. I, I rely like a lot of, I mean, I said to... My therapist the other day, I said something, I was actually talking about students and mental health issues, and I said something like what everyone says these days, which is like, I'm not qualified to deal mm -hmm. with these issues, but yet passing them off, like I've just described as like, we know we're just rinsing our hands. <laughs> and then I said, why does it seem like there's so much more of this? And she said, well, what if there is? And it kind of really like landed on me as kind of like, instead of just thinking like, it's always been like this. Now we just have 75,000 diagnostic codes. Suddenly I was like, oh God, like what if we, what if people really are going great? <laughs> what if people really are melting down? Yeah. And in which case, you know, that's where Bifo's whole idea of like, you know, as he says, the therapy of the future will be helping each other come to happy adaptation when, you know, he calls it modern man has been dissolved. But like that, I, I do think that there is an element of that happening everywhere. Um, and that's why, I, you know, to me, I don't, I don't feel like therapy or mental health services are um, the right place for me to look. I mean, I'm interested in other forms of training about ways of demonstrating compassion for others that wouldn't necessarily move into like um, that territory, you know, mm -hmm. but I think it's very, it's a, it's a very complicated question. And, you know, I mean, I, and I really do hope that, because here's the thing, like working on like an intellectual project with a student is really a th is therapeutic and yeah. that you're kind of like, you know what, your life doesn't have to be dominated by these feelings that you're having at home and your anxiety. Like, actually, you got yourself here. You care deeply about, you know, this Victorianist issue and Heidegger's lens on it. Like, let's do it together, because that also shows us that, like, there's a third thing that we can both care about together. And that caring about the third thing I mean, this is kind of the thesis of the art of cruelty, but, you know, that creates a kind of solidarity that's not collapsed. It's actually like a scaffold that, you know, Arendt described it as like the table between two people that, that actually facilitates their capacity to be sitting together. <laughs> like it, the table announces that they're, you know, not not smooshing their bodies together. It's actually kind of like the structural hold like the Winnicottian, you know, embrace or something. So I, I'm, I'm kind of a deep believer in that. I mean, I know it only goes so far, but it's what I think I have to offer, you know. Mm -hmm. And But again, it might not be what all students want. Some students need and want something else. I mean, they probably won't find it with me. Mm -hmm. But there are also a lot of different kinds of professors, and God knows there are a lot of them that are willing to <laughs> transgress <laughs> their boundaries. So, right. You know, but I think that that... Um, you know, the fear I had of transgressing a boundary was very large as coming up as a student. And I think it's really complicated now where it's almost like both sides of the student-teacher relationship have a lot of anxiety about that. When in some ways I just feel like the path to me of what we should be doing seems pretty golden and clear, you know. Mm. But what... It 
what are some of the other ways? I mean, you just said yeah, one yeah. about about really engaging in, in, in a shared intellectual mm-hmm, pursuit or mm-hmm. supporting a student in uh, in their intellectual mm-hmm. endeavor, which I mean, I think is so deeply profound. Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. both know that um, in some circumstances mm-hmm. with some students, mm-hmm. um, recommending the right book is mm-hmm. better than a year yeah, of therapy. Totally. Absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, but what are some of the other ways uh, other than therapy mm-hmm. and other than um, that, though, that mm-hmm. kind of intellectual mm-hmm. scaffolding um, are you thinking about in terms of like ways of uh, demonstrating mm-hmm. care or compassion? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think just like, um, you know, becoming a more sane and mature person can involve, you know, becoming less reactive to other people. Mm -hmm. So um, you're able to listen to them more, even when they're saying things that you find totally objectionable or whatever, and you're just kind of not, but you're, but you're suspending, you know, your own reactivity. And I think that that can be kind of a great gift in that I think it's really tempting. Um, Especially like, say you go around and you're doing like a lot of Q and A's and it's like, um, and you're familiar with some of kind of like the same questions or the same kind of gotcha questions, these different things. And like, I don't know, I did a um, Q&A with Sarah Lucas, the artist, the other day. And um, you can people can watch it on uh, the Hammer YouTube, whatever. It was so brilliant and I thought so moving and I learned so much where like after the presentation um, in our conversation, somebody asked the kind of, you know, money shot question that's always asked, which is kind of like, given that the world's, you know, going to hell, you know, and we're dancing on the ship of the Titanic, like, how can you sit here and talk about, you know, your little sculptures and not be talking about these broader things and kind of like, you know, essentially, how can you live with yourself, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, she just like, but it was, it was, it was affect like where, um, you know, it, it was a classic confrontational Q&A thing, but nothing about her being mm. took it in as mm. an attack. She just said, oh, you know, she said, that's so interesting. She's like, I think that kind of question is, you know, precisely what you should answer about your art. Like, that's, the, that's exactly the question you should put to yourself about what you're making. You know, she's uh-huh. like, I'm going to answer it my own way. I make what I make. She's like, but that is such a good question for you. But it was like, even even the way I'm saying it now makes it sound more confrontational. It was just totally good spirited and... And the reason why was because Sarah's that kind of person. So it, it didn't land and engage a whole mm. defensive, reactive thing. And and it and it made so much space. It completely diffused the room because as that person was talking, I think the person began by saying something like, no offense, you know, and with all <laughs> due respect. And so, of course, everyone in the room had like become really uh-huh. clenched because we knew that they were about to like unload. And I think it, but it just like little things like that, they just teach me so much. I mean, they're just like with your own kids or anybody, just like, you know, we're so ready to teach and lecture and tell and react and with our partners or whoever people come home, they tell us something and they, you know, just, just the way we react to everybody mm-hmm. and just kind of really, you know, just rearranging oneself so that like you're not um, in these rote modalities because like watching, I mean, it's just a little teeny microcosm, but watching what happened to the energy in that room when Sarah met that with this like kind of huge sunlight Mm. was just like totally, not only was it transformative, I think her answer was also correct, which is like, yeah, we've all got to, we've all got to, 
we, we can't control what each other do. We can help each other uh, get to things that, you know, thinking about what we all might want to do or what we should do, but that's not the same as telling each other what to do. So I think it's somehow, I don't know if I'm like making any sense, but. Oh my God, yeah. so much so. And I, I, and I was thinking about a few different things. I mean, um, one is that I've seen Claudia Rankin respond to mm -hmm. um, questions. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it with sunlight, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. with that quality um, of a non-reactivity mm -hmm. that really is 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 just astonishing yeah. to me. And I think that that you know now that you said that it's obvious. It's all of a sudden mm -hmm. it seems so clear to me. Like mm -hmm. I think that's part of what's making mm -hmm. teaching complicated and and somewhat painful for mm -hmm. me right now is that particularly, and maybe you've had this experience mm -hmm. um, with your stepson, but like for me, particularly the teenage mm -hmm. years and yeah. parenting, because it, I don't, it, it, the demands of younger children mm -hmm. for me were logistical and physical mm -hmm. and emotional, mm -hmm. but not emotional in the sense that I yeah. felt that I really lost my ability mm -hmm. to um, kind of uh, have a healthy level mm -hmm. of reactivity yeah, yeah, yeah. or less. And it, and it was almost like every, mm -hmm. at a certain point, mm -hmm. um, every reaction, I just think I felt mm -hmm. so responsible, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. For every mm -hmm. emotion that my mm -hmm. kids were feeling and their mm -hmm. struggles. And, yeah. you know, this question around control, yeah. right. Which yeah. I wasn't doing right. with other yeah. people. Yeah. Well, that's the problem with but, kids is that right? they are the most, painful teachers of these things because they're not we don't control them but we have a responsibility for them which is distinct than we have for our graduate from our from our students and right. for other adult human beings and stuff so there's a kind of um you can't just say hey man you know hope you figure this out it's like you know they're looking to you Good being luck like with that. yeah no you can't <laughs> and, and also worst you know, you reap what you sow. So you also see in their behaviors a million things oh that you God. feel as though you put there. Yep. And that's incredibly painful, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I feel like that's why, like, you can call it spiritual work, whatever you want to call it. Like, to me, I feel like I don't even do it for myself. I do it because I just keep thinking the better I, you know, can do with some of this stuff even if it's just one grain less of sand mm -hmm. <laughs> I put in my kid's, you know, satchel, yep. maybe that's, you know, it's worth it. But, you know, it's, I say the one grain less because I think it's like, it can feel very all or nothing. Like you can feel like you fucked him up or you did it right. And, mm -hmm. and, and it, it's, it can't be that, <laughs> you know, it isn't that, but I think as a parent, that's how it feels sometimes. Mm -hmm. you know? Do you have a spiritual practice right now? Uh, I mean, ish, you know, uh -huh. ish, you know, do you? Uh, I, I sort of, um, take them up and then yeah. sort of go through a whole drama around whether I failed at them, which is totally yeah. not the point yeah, ever yeah, yeah. of a spiritual yeah. practice. But, um, I did do a mindfulness based stress reduction, mm -hmm. um, program, um, last, uh, January, yeah. um, this past January, um, for nine weeks. And I really, really loved the teacher and, and felt like it was very, uh, much about what what we're talking about yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. noticing but not necessarily trying to fix or change right. yeah, yeah, yeah. um 
and it got complicated for me without going, yeah, you know, yeah. off on a tangent. But I, I was like, wow, this is the first time in my life that I'm really able to meditate. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I've always sort of fought it mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. suffered through it. But I was like, I'm getting it. I'm getting, you know, this is this. It's not always easy, but, mm-hmm. you know, I get it. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered that I was like severely anemic. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I really actually think uh-huh. that the anemia was was like you were tired I yeah I was I, I was like I, I had lost so much blood which mm-hmm. is why I ended up having the hysterectomy but but I think that like just I didn't have enough iron in my wow. blood to be anxious and your iron came back in your anxiety absolutely exactly and I was like oh this is the <laughs> this is so sad but in any case while yeah. you were talking um this same teacher Elaine Rethold um who I who I really admire mm-hmm. um in part because she's uh this is this, so this sounds like a not nice mm-hmm. thing to say, but um, she's so clear and in in a way not maternal mm-hmm, at all, mm-hmm. and so that's very helpful mm-hmm, to me in this mm-hmm. context. And mm-hmm. she's offering a class on um, love and kindness meditations, mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. about taking that and trying mm-hmm. to um, start a, 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 some sort of meditative practice a, around. How old are you? That. 47. Okay. So we're the yeah. same age. I mean, I, I think that, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any like grand insight about this moment, but I think that, I don't know. I mean, I definitely do feel like a, a kind of crossroads where it's like, I mean, the freedom book, I think ended up making this excruciatingly clear, <laughs> which is kind of that like liberatory project often can feel like a young person's sport because by the time you get to midlife, you know, you're, you're pretty, aware that you're trapped in this body and you're trapped in this mortality and you're trapped in this lifetime, you're trapped in history and all of that, um, is not going to change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're going to feel, you know, so if you continue along the same lines, you're going to feel, and and kind of earlier, more juvenile notions of emancipation are not, are, are, are patently, um, unavailable and uninteresting and impossible, you know, you, you need to find, given that what you spend the first half of your life thinking like, you know, like me, my dad died when he was 40 and I was like, I don't want to die when I'm 40. And Mm -hmm. it was kind of like, but then you feel like after I feel like I succeeded, then suddenly I was like, but shit, I'm still going to die. You know, like, oh, like I made it, but I'm, oh God, but it didn't solve the problem, you know? So I feel like there's a grand crossroads of like, as you head into more and more forms of entrapment, from Alzheimer's to whatever it might be for you, and you know it will be something, um, you know, you, it really feels like a, I mean, I, I think that I understand now why when I was younger, I couldn't understand why like all older people weren't more like John Cage or something, like why they didn't just seem more free, yeah. why they, and now I feel like, you know, having sent several, you know, my in-laws to the, you know, seen them through to their ends and my own aging parents, and it's kind of like, you know, you, you just see physiologically how much more, you know, the anxiety is part of aging and the anxiety can, if you don't counter it, it it actually can just uh, blossom and bloom and continue because as you decline physically and or mentally, you know, your body will produce feelings of great anxiety in response to a world that you're frightened of. And so it just feels like a grand crossroads that like you either figure out, some methodologies by which you don't want to um, just let that happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> Become more and more of a basket case 
um, agoraphobic or, you know, where people are taking your money or whatever it is, you know, uh, and how, but, it, you know, I think it, it, it takes, you know, I think I always imagined that you would have less and less to worry about, but, you know, your bonds to the living deepen and your, you know, care for your children just becomes more and more excruciating. <laughs> it just Absolutely. is like, it's not. And so the kind of idea of escape you know, you're just like, oops, that was a fantasy and now it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Know? And so yeah. what am I going to do next? You know? Right. You know, there, there was so much possibility. What yeah. kind of person am I going to be? Yeah. Will I have children? Will I not have children? Oh, now I have children. What kind of people will there right. they yeah, be? Yeah. And not to say that everything is set in stone, right? but there is this real feeling that I have of like, how did I, get here yeah. is this the life that I wanted you know and I think you know it, it's 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 very hard to change mm -hmm. you know I I at least for me find mm -hmm. it harder and harder mm -hmm. to uh you know yeah. to imagine a bit a big change that wouldn't hurt the people that I love mm -hmm. which I don't mm -hmm. want to do um you mean changes in like your material circumstance no yeah. I, mean, I mean like money I mean just like where you live or what you who you cohabitate with or just like just all that yeah, yeah. I mean mm -hmm. like I could cut my hair right <laughs> Which I did. Right. And yeah, turns yeah. out it did have an effect, um, interestingly, a, a small effect. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, not that much. Uh, you know, or I can yeah. or I can try to write a totally different kind of right. book. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh, it's just a Rachel Zucker book, yeah. you know. Um, so part of it is it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to change because right. yeah, yeah. you have to drag people with you right. and they may not want to change. Yeah. Um, you know, like a very small thing, but, mm -hmm. um, I, I've been really wanting to move mm -hmm. for a long time, mm -hmm. but without like a job offer, mm -hmm. like where, where, where mm -hmm. would I move? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're trying to think about maybe, uh, mm -hmm. taking a sabbatical if, mm -hmm. if my husband can get one, mm -hmm. um, and going, you know, outside of the United States, right. yeah, yeah. but my 12 year old, he, he doesn't want that at all. At all. Right. That's yeah, the yeah, yeah, worst yeah. thing he can imagine. Yeah. He's at a point in his life right. where yeah. He's just has independence. And he he <laughs> can see his friends mm -hmm. and he can, he doesn't want to go away right. from his yeah, yeah, yeah. cohort. Yeah. That's awful in his yeah. mind, you know, so we might yeah. force him to do it. We might right. not, but yeah. that's, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. there's, you know, and, and obviously, you know, my teenagers, um, one's not even a teenager anymore, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, they have so much, uh, yeah. life ahead of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet they are who they are. Right. Like that's yeah, yeah, not, yeah. they're not going to yeah. suddenly be yeah. happy go lucky people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. not in the yeah. cards right now yeah. or maybe ever. Right. And so those are the kids I have. Um, these are the circumstances yeah. I have, like yeah. whatever I do next. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've lived in New York mm -hmm. for a really long time. Long right? time yeah. And yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't raise my children in the country. Right. Yeah, I yeah, didn't, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. have a relationship mm -hmm. with nature. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't, you know, like all those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's mm -hmm. sometimes I think, you know what? 90% mm -hmm. of my thoughts and mm -hmm. feelings mm -hmm. are just developmental, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. it's it. And, and it's mm -hmm. hard for, it's hard for people to see like, Oh, yeah, those are, those are mid forties feelings, mm -hmm. you know, or late forties feelings, mm -hmm. uh, this with the same kind of, um, variation but like not mm -hmm. that much variation mm -hmm. the way like most kids mm -hmm. walk around one mm -hmm. and talk around right. two yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. you know maybe these kinds of yeah. questions which seem so mm -hmm. existentially mm -hmm. you know fraught mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. are just like 
Mm-hmm. These are the questions of mm-hmm. the mid to late 40s. Well, it's painful, too, because, I mean, this comes up mostly in, like, the chapter in the book I just wrote about in the sexual freedom chapter and the Me Too stuff. But, you know, it's really, I really wanted to try and think about, like, you know, how do we honor, it sounds so cheesy, I'll just let myself say it, like, how do we honor the wisdom that comes at different moments in life um, and and not have, like, this intergenerational warfare issue, but at the same time to fully know that like it's not like the things that you know later are not the things that you know earlier and that they and that both states of knowing are important states of knowing so Mm -hmm. maybe like trying always to like make these bridges is like not um I mean that one of the theses of like that chapter is kind of just that like you know, certain political conditions about sexual freedom are definitely achievable whether it's like Roe v. Wade or you know, contraception or different things. And you can try and make a populace and raise boys, as we both have done, with a different gestalt in terms of uh, sexual activity. But, you know, no one's going to figure out your body for you. and No mm-hmm. one's going to figure out sexual mistakes and sexual experiment. And, like, and it does not always go well. Mm-hmm. And it's just really... Um, and, and I think there's something about, you know, that process, like any painful process in life that, again, I'm not saying you can't make it better, but that like it can't be, it can't be really made, it can be made easier mm-hmm. and like in some of the, the deepest traumas that we can try and shave off, you know, like at all ends. But it's like, it's, a, you know, it's like, it's something that you have to, you know, you know, it literally is your body, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to figure out as you go along. And I just think some of that is just like, you know, just it, it's it takes time and re- not repetition of the same scenario, but, you know, many years of exposure to different scenarios for you to gather whatever information you need to get about, you know, a lot of things. And so it's just and that's just not something that can it, it, it's not transmittable, I'm trying to say, from one generation to the next. But, you know, most of life isn't like life is not transmittable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the seed of it is transmittable, <laughs> but not the experience of it. So nothing is, you know, so when your kids say to you, you know, you have no idea. They are correct because we don't we do know, but they don't, we don't know, they are knowing anew yeah. <laughs> and that is what their business is, you know, and, and that's exactly what they should be doing, you know, and you can't, it can't be, you can't transmit it to them. I mean, if you, it, we wish we could, but then life would be moribund <laughs> you know? right. as an exercise. We would just be going through the motions with no discovery, you know. So that, that leads me to this question that I I don't know how to ask um, as a question. So I'm going to try to just okay, like great. talk about it for a second. Okay, great. Um, so one of the things that I, I've been thinking about when like listening to you talk on interviews and looking at your books again and, and thinking about um, your work and, and kind of some of the things that I uh, identify mm-hmm. with um, and then also being really interested and curious about some of the differences that mm-hmm. I see between our work. And I was trying to think, are these aesthetic differences? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, that's not the right word. Mm. I, I feel that, that you and I have kind of similar minds mm-hmm. in certain ways. I see in your work, this, um, desire, curiosity, almost compulsion mm-hmm. to look at things from many, many, mm-hmm. many different angles mm-hmm. to, to turn it around and turn it around and mm-hmm. turn it around. 
starting through observation, through Mm -hmm. description and then contemplation and then moving to an idea mm-hmm. um, rather than, you know, as we were sort of mentioning before, um, these books that are like, you know, argument books, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. e- even if your books are uh, have a less mm-hmm. um, close relationship to the eye, mm-hmm. they're not, um, you know, argument mm-hmm. books in that in that mm-hmm. same way. With um, all so all of I, your work, I, I, I really have this feeling that like everything you were reading, everything you were doing, Mm -hmm. the people that you were with, Mm -hmm. the place that you lived, Mm -hmm. um, the circumstances around, um, the, the making of the book Mm -hmm. go into the book, Mm -hmm. whether they're Mm -hmm. named or not. And often Mm -hmm. they are named. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that I think I feel Mm -hmm. really drawn to also Mm -hmm. like of including Mm -hmm. whether it's the domestic Mm -hmm. or, you know, the interruption Mm -hmm. of the children. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is something that I identify with, mm-hmm, that I recognize mm-hmm. that, um, but Wayne helped me think about your work. Um, he was, he had a phrase that I can't even remember, but it was something about like, in, cause his language is just like, uh, incandescent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it had to do with, um, your relationship to lucidity. Mm. Um, and it's always a very bad idea to, to paraphrase yeah. Wayne, um, much better to quote him. Uh, I can't find it, but that, that you are, you know, really a genius in untangling things or disentanglement, Mm. I think was the word that he used Mm -hmm. and your relationship to clarity and lucidity. And I think that to some extent, uh, I am really the opposite. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it's like I'm turning it around and I'm turning it Mm -hmm. around and then it sort of just stays a big Mm -hmm. old mess. Mm -hmm. And intentionally uh, you feel like, well, that's so if I have a question, Uh (laughs) because I think that there are some advantages Mm -hmm. to, Mm -hmm. you know, or not advantages, but there's, I mean, a a lot of the comments that I've had, Mm -hmm. um, on my most recent book, but you know, you, you, it's like you notice so many things Mm. at once and you're putting them all in the Mm. book Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and some people are really interested in that Mm -hmm. but i think it's pretty overwhelming Mm -hmm. both the experience of it for me Mm -hmm. and then like the Mm -hmm. the reading of it and and it and if anything it i think has the feeling of re-entanglement mm-hmm. or or further entanglement mm-hmm. um and that i i do think i have mm-hmm. kind of like built a political mm-hmm. justification mm-hmm. around this mm-hmm. but i actually wonder if it's mm-hmm. just temperamental mm-hmm. or if it's mm-hmm. just um is it, does it happen in every media i mean every genre that you write like is it specific to poetry i mean i have you know I, i'm trying to really finish 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 mm-hmm. this book of lectures mm-hmm. that i wrote um, that, that is, that mm-hmm. is really hard for me. Um, and one of the issues that I'm mm-hmm. having with wave is that it's too long mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I don't know how to write a short book. Mm-hmm. And if anything, this has gotten worse and worse mm-hmm. for me as mm-hmm. I've gone along. And to some extent, um, I, I kind of feel like no one should just read one of my books. They mm-hmm. should re- read all, all of them, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which of course is, I'm not actually suggesting sure. yeah, that, yeah, but that's yeah. the feeling that mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. that all the things are connected mm-hmm. and it's very hard mm-hmm. for me to say one mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. or to separate or to, and there's almost mm-hmm. like a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a grief mm-hmm. around that. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm writing about this, it means I'm not writing about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. if I'm, yeah. if I'm saying it in this one way, and mm-hmm. I think that my poems have gotten longer and longer mm-hmm. and turned into prose, mm-hmm. my prose mm-hmm. has gotten longer and longer. And, mm-hmm. and then if I'm writing about, about 
a subject, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I feel compelled mm-hmm. to call attention to the form that I'm choosing to write about anything mm-hmm. and why mm-hmm. am I choosing that mm-hmm. form and what does that mean? And, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, these, sounds great. Well, I don't know. But yeah. so I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, but I, yeah. I guess I feel like you have the same, you have mm-hmm. this like incredible um, complexity of thought and of bringing things together, but the forms mm. that somehow, or the form that things mm-hmm. have then manifest, mm-hmm. like with, especially with Bluets and the mm-hmm. Argonauts, mm-hmm. Um, but with all of your books mm-hmm. um, are, there's a lot of space mm-hmm. um, for the reader to breathe, to mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. to engage your complexity, but mm-hmm. also not feel like they are also mm-hmm. having a nervous mm-hmm. breakdown. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of feel, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think, mm-hmm. I think I a little bit at this moment, regret but mm-hmm. i don't think this i don't know if this thing i can change you know like mm-hmm. that my most recent mm-hmm. book is kind of like a roller coaster mm-hmm. ride mm-hmm. through like anxiety land and i don't uh, why that's well, not that's, that's not the thing really... i think everybody feels like i mean i think everybody like your writing summons the kind of hologram of what it is not <laughs> what it is not uh-huh. and then i mean like you know i will like I mean, I find writing, I mean, I find lucidity and prose um, so onerous that there's always a moment at which I start, like, part of my brain just starts being like, the next book is going to be gobbledygook, you know, poetry, like, dot, like, dot, word salad, or, like, I start reading Beckett, and I'll just be like, I'm just going to write monologues that are totally impenetrable. You know, like, I get, like, a real, you know, desperate thirst for, like, fugitive <laughs> meaning and non, you know, I think that... So I think that's like very natural to like also look at what other people do and feel kind of. I mean, I wrote a review recently of Fred Moten's book, Black and Blur, and and that review was like really hard to write insofar as, as I said in the first paragraph, which I only bring up because it was about, you know, lucidity was like that I felt like it was such a fool's errand that I was going to try and be lucid about somebody's work that, you know, was really set up like in a, in a joyful way as a kind of like series of booby traps around the kind of laser point of, you know, of uh, disentanglement or mm. something. So I think, um, but, you know, sadly, as we've been discussing, we all are who we are. And like um, my mother is a, has a company called Nelson Communications where she teaches um, business writing and, um, bullet point communication and really grew up always telling me to get to the point <laughs> or correcting my grammar. And, you know, there's like a kind of um, like there's something in me that just also has that as mm-hmm. a as a capacity or a desire. You know, I mean, I think that what you're describing about seeing things through a lot of lenses um, makes my first drafts of things or whatever you want to call it, you know, my, the the 10th draft that somebody sees as the first draft, like um, it, it it always in this book is the same case. I just turned in, you know, that I already know that the two flaws that are going to be cited are it being oversighted, too many other people talking and um, hedging on what I want to say by representing too many people's arguments. Um, So I already know, I already know that that's what I do. (laughs) And um, I think it's interesting because some people write really kind of like 
strong polemic that people say, oh, it's a little totalizing. Maybe you should back up a little bit. You know, I know that I don't start there and I know that strong moments in my writing have to be like achieved. Like I don't begin with them at mm. all. And so, and that could be like my gender, you know, conscription. It could be many things. It could be, could be positive things about my, you know, endless openness to varying viewpoints. Um, but it definitely is something that I have to work on in the writing because um, I don't like, I mean, I like other people's polemical writing. I don't, usually with myself, if it's not very earned what I've come to, it strikes my ear as so tinny as to be like unreadable. Mm. So it really has to be like um, performative, I guess. It has to be performative in a way where I'm confident that the performance of the strong statement is kind of still hitting, like you say, like a kind of multi-chord. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and when it says what it what, what it's saying, I don't I don't want it to hit one chord. And and so that is like a very long and complicated writing drama, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, because I think that um, what I love so much about your work is that it's clear, but not simplified. Mm -hmm. Like it, it does not, um, it never, I mean, there's, there, there can be such a violence of, uh, something that is, um, stated authoritatively, mm -hmm. um, or singularly. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's also such a pleasure mm -hmm. and such a strength in that. Mm -hmm. Um, so how, how, uh, how far away, like this draft that you just mm -hmm. finished of mm -hmm. the freedom book, does that have a title by the way? No, Not yet. No, oh, let's no. call it the freedom. Okay, book. Yeah. <laughs> how much do you think it's going to change by the time it actually gets to be published, either in terms of yeah, yeah. less citing, less hedging, or something else. Mm. It is, is Jeff Schatz the one who mm. ends up really like mm. getting it from mm -hmm. where it is to mm -hmm. where it needs to be? Mm -hmm. Do you have another um, editor who is the person, or, or, or is it more like, okay, you turned it in to him, or mm -hmm. I don't know if he's the person that you work no, with there. No, it's Ethan Nisowski. Okay. Yeah. So you turned it into Ethan, mm -hmm. and then now is he going to be like, Maggie, you know what needs to happen, do it. Or like, I mean, I don't know. My experience with editors is that, um, you know, they can diagnose problems, but they can't uh, offer solutions, you know? So mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really look to the editor to like solve anything for me. I'm like, I, you know, my partner just wrote a book, which is really great and it's coming out in March. And so I've been going through his own editing process with him, you know, and, and I've told him, you know, many times and you know, cause he'll be like, do I have to take this? Like, you know, I think that like, I think I'll say like, I see what your editor's saying, but I don't agree with the, what he said as a solution. And I think the editors just offer solutions cause they gotta like, feel like they're doing something they're in their keep. But I don't <laughs> think, I think that they also know that they're not the person with the hat that the rabbit's going to come out of, you know, like they, they, they can't because, so I think I, I look to editors to like, I mean, often I'll agree, like if we circle the same section and I'll be like, yeah, that section's a mess. But it's like, I think, I think, you know, it's fine to turn in something that is flawed, at least in this book's case. Like a lot of my books I don't turn in for a very long time after like every smart friend of mine has helped me and I've re-edited it a million times because like I have to prove that the book you know, the book's like, like, like a book like Jane, that's like, 
if it's not working, someone's going to faultily say that it's not working because what I'm trying to do with the form is not possible because mm -hmm. I just didn't make it work yet. So they're going to diagnose it as like a formal problem, but it's not. It just was like, oh, you know what, actually, I mean, I could, my, my partner who does a lot of video art, you know, talks about a lot how like, and I've seen how it's true, like editing timing and, you know, like editing, whatever, like editing timing in like a piece of video art, like just, you know, milliseconds make something either funny or not funny, you yeah. know? And so it's kind of like, I, I, so I, but, but in a book like this, like a big critical book, you know, things won't change. Like we're not going to like change the topics or change the, you know, like we might rearrange the chapters. I mean, I think I don't mind handing it in baggy and loose because, um, I think at a certain point with critical writing, like critical writing is kind of weird because I think in part it can be a little bit like a service where you are like, hey, you might not know what Chakrabarti had to say about the notion of human freedom and its relationship to carbon. So let me like pause for two paragraphs to explain this to you while mm -hmm. you're trying to get to your thesis that you, what you want to say about that. And you don't really know, you've like lost track of like, how much of your description is just super in the weeds and mm -hmm. someone's like, and then, or, or someone will just be like, I have no clue what you're talking about. You need to go like three paragraphs more into this, but I feel like I don't, I, sometimes I just lose track and I also lose track of what ideas are interesting. Like I have certain ideas, I think. So I think that that book will be like each chapter right now is about 80 pages. And I think they'll each be about 50 or 60. And then it's just a matter of like whacking out mm -hmm. the, it's not that there is like, a thing I'm trying to get myself to say that I won't say, but it's kind of like I'm still searching for like, like it might not be strongly stated enough mm -hmm. because I'm worried that like I still haven't like don't have quite the right tone because some of the things in this book are pretty, not what I'm saying is controversial, but the subjects are really heated. And so I think a lot of contemporary writing can do too much hedging. But on the other hand, you know, there's you what am I trying to say? Like, I mean, the Argonauts was kind of trying to do this too. Like sometimes more provocative arguments or something are much easier to take if they're embedded in something that shows how much you care about the issues that are at stake. And you're not just like coming in from some, you know, ignorant reactionary place being this whole thing is piled. You know, it's like, you know, like the way that so much writing is these days that critiques like so-called leftist or progressive, you know, trends or habits of mind, you know? So I think to kind of like, spend enough time laboring with your care have you been writing poems in the past no i've years? written a poem for like you know i don't know like 10 years or something yeah how do you feel yeah. about that i don't know i don't care anymore i mean i, I cared for a while but i just don't care anymore because it's been so long i mean i think i i mean i think i would like to actually wayne had you know has always told me that like you know if you want to write poetry you have to keep reading poetry and i think the less you read poetry like you know it's kind of like it's it, it can be very swift when I read great poetry to have the urge to like write something poetry-like. I think that what you're describing about poetry, or not poetry, but about like what you're describing about like getting further into like the murk, I think like that really great poetry can really do that. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, I, it, it was just beginning to serve as more of like an escape hatch like where I could feel that it was actually kind of um like if it sounded good enough I didn't have to think it any further through and uh -huh. that to me seemed not intellectually like a, a compelling place to be you know so I think I would have to somehow find that it sounded good enough 
and was good at, and and was the best of my thought at the same time you know I mean I think it's very cliched but like the closest I've been to writing poetry have been a strong you know event you know witnessing a death you know things mm-hmm. that like that that are not that like you you feel like it's kind of a, a violation to render them in prose or something you know mm-hmm. but not um but not like daily poetry mm-hmm. you know what about you do you fall away from poetry I mean I keep trying not to write mm-hmm. poetry and mm-hmm. I don't really even know if my I I very much do not think of my mm-hmm. recent book as poetry but mm-hmm. in part because I published it with Wave right um it like gets you know right yeah. um and and you know but but poet friends of mine have also said like Craig Teicher's like uh-huh. yeah but you are a poet Right. Um, and it is poetry in part because of this right. kind of quality of mm-hmm. like sort of uh, making the form uh, as much what happened mm-hmm. um, as anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't really mm-hmm. I, ha- I have a, a, a very love, hate, mm-hmm. hate, hate mm-hmm. relationship right now with poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean. And, and, and the books of poetry mm-hmm. that, that I, like, I just, um, I've read Sarah Vapp's, um, new mm-hmm. book, mm-hmm. um, in manuscript and, mm-hmm. and then when it mm-hmm. just, ca- it just came out. Um, and I mean, is that poetry? Mm-hmm. It's you, mm-hmm. it's not, not poetry. Mm-hmm. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but that book is extremely mm-hmm. meaningful to mm-hmm. me in part because it's, it's, it's you have the experience mm-hmm. of interruptibility mm-hmm. of the relationship mm-hmm. between child and parent, mm-hmm. um, between sort of this political urgency mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. played out only in the domestic mm-hmm. sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and I don't, I don't think that she could have rendered that mm-hmm. in nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, without it seeming like mm-hmm. extremely heavy handed mm-hmm. somehow, mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't really even know like how, what that would look like, mm-hmm. but I don't, it, you know, the book doesn't have, it's not mm-hmm. in lines mm-hmm. and it's not doing the thing with language that mm-hmm. poetry usually does, which I'm grateful for mm-hmm. it not doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's kind of, if I, I think I'm gravitating mm-hmm. towards forms that mm-hmm. are hybrid, whatever that mm-hmm. means, or, you know, genre non-conforming mm-hmm. or, or, um, you know, I've just read Ann Boyer's, um, mm-hmm. new book, The Undying, mm-hmm. which I just, I, mm-hmm. I mean, every single page mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, can I just, whoever was around, I was like, can I just read you this one thing? Amazing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, is that, that's not poetry, right. is yeah, it? Yeah. But it, but it also yeah. is clearly from a poet's mind. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would say that mm-hmm. about a lot of your work too. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's what I'm really, I don't know that mm-hmm. that's what I have mm-hmm. accomplished. Mm-hmm. I think it's what I set out to mm-hmm. accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I think it's what I'm really kind mm-hmm. of like most drawn to right mm-hmm. now in my life mm-hmm. is not poetry mm-hmm. from a poet's mind, mm-hmm. whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. the problem sometimes mm-hmm. is like when it's done well and when it's kind of, I don't know, marketed mm-hmm. properly, um, it, it appeals to poets and non-poets mm-hmm. when it's mm-hmm. d- not, um, 
it kind of, it's just confusing to everybody. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. poets are like, what is this? It's not poetry. And, mm-hmm. um, people who would read, um, kind of mm-hmm, creative nonfiction mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm, weird, mm-hmm, um, prose mm-hmm. are like, I think that might be poetry and I don't like poetry. Right, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. only thing I know about poetry yeah, yeah, is yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. yeah. You know, that's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. 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 Has any yeah. of the freedom book been published yeah. anywhere? No, no, no. It's all just in my hot silver box here. No, yeah, no, yeah, you know, it's, it's weird. I don't, um, my partner's always making fun of me because he's like, he's like, you know, you're such an exhibitionist and you're just like the most secretive writer. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, because he'll like, you know, he makes sculpture. I mean, he writes too, but like, you know, he'll like, he'll put like some resin on and be like, come to the studio, check out the new resin. And I'll be like, okay, are you sure you want me to see it? Like, just, it's not done. You'll be like, whatever. I just want you to see this new code. It's like, I'm just so the opposite. And I've just, you know, I just have always really felt like that very strongly. And a lot of it's just utterly self-protective. It's just like, you know, I don't want to hear what anyone has to say until I've solved this problem myself. So yeah, no, 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 nothing anywhere in... <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, do you do you have any questions for yeah. me? Are you still doing doula work or do you not do that anymore? Yeah. Um, I haven't. Yeah. Um, and I I sort of have like mixed uh, yeah. feelings about that. Um, the last birth I went to, I think was about five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I miss I miss it mm-hmm. a lot in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um it mostly what happened was that my husband started teaching high school first mm. full time. Mm-hmm. And so I just didn't have backup. Yeah, sure. Like I couldn't, yeah, yeah, I yeah. couldn't yeah. say, Hey, yeah. I have to be at a birth for three days. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you yeah. know, you totally. take the kids cause he couldn't, yeah, he, he couldn't, couldn't do, it. do it. Yeah. I think things also changed when, when I was nursing Judah. Uh, so, you know, like 12 mm-hmm. to 10 years mm-hmm. ago, I had a tough time, um, uh, doing that kind of work and being apart from him yeah. for a long yeah. period of time. And then I also, I didn't really want to only do home births, mm-hmm. um, you know, or certain kinds mm-hmm. of births, mm-hmm. so, you know, that, mm-hmm. that did not appeal to me, but I did feel to some extent that when I was doing hospital births, um, I was kind of like unwittingly supporting a system mm-hmm. that I felt like I, I, I was, I was sort mm-hmm. of there to give, a woman mm-hmm. the birth that she thought she wanted that she couldn't get mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. hospital mm-hmm. without a doula mm-hmm. but i you know i mm-hmm. i was kind of like there's something not quite right about this mm-hmm. um and so mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. i stopped doing it and i um did a childbirth education mm-hmm. certification mm-hmm. which is actually a uh one of the most intensive educational wow. experiences like you have to know anatomy mm-hmm. and physiology and um a lot a mm-hmm. lot of stuff wow. and it was a very intensive program mm-hmm. um and I did it also in part because I was like oh it's going to be better for for me mm-hmm. at that stage of my parenting to teach classes mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. I'll 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 be interacting with parents mm-hmm. you know parents to be in this in this kind mm-hmm. of more intellectual mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. um less hands-on but like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um in a way that maybe is going to be more meaningful mm-hmm. in certain ways um uh at times that I can control mm-hmm. so that I can mm-hmm. be home yeah 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 um yeah. And then I didn't actually end up teaching childbirth ed classes mm-hmm. right, um, right, right. for yeah. a lot of a yeah, lot yeah. of reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you teach at NYU. I'm an adjunct okay. at NYU, which okay. is which is wearing thin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
for yeah. a long time, right? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's also, I think I might be ready to yeah. do something totally different. You're going to move to the country? I don't know. Yeah. I either need yeah. to move mm-hmm. and then get a whole new job mm-hmm. or get a whole new job mm-hmm. or get a whole new job and move mm-hmm. or, or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. We'll interesting. see. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else? No, I'm yeah. good. I'm good. Awesome. you have any burning questions? No, I, I mean, okay. I'm for sure. Yeah. I'm going to think of one as Later. soon as we turn yeah. off the microphone. That always have been listening to episode 82 of Commonplace with Maggie Nelson. This episode was produced by me, Doreen Wang, Christine LaRusso, and the newest member of the Commonplace team, Jay Hammond. Katie Fernelius, we miss you, we adore you, and we wish you well on all your reporting and writing and audio adventures. Many thanks to Wave Books, Gray Wolf, University of Iowa Press, Soft Skull, Zed Books, and W.W. Norton for donating books to the Commonplace Book Club. Thank you to Beyond Baroque for hosting Sarah Vapp and me in your beautiful reading space and for allowing us to share the audio with our patrons. Thank you to all of our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you for recommending Commonplace to students and friends and for writing us reviews on iTunes and for sending us encouraging emails and social media messages. Thank you to all the therapists and psychiatrists who have been working with me and my sons and to all of you who are, in your parenting, friendships, professional and personal lives, caring for others.